0: I've added a few things on the prayer list there as I was going that I thought of, but obviously be praying about about some of those matters with the Word of God and the harvest party coming up. How many of you got something in your mailbox for the harvest party? I bet you didn't in Belton, did you? We should, if we had enough money in our budget, I would send those little flyers everywhere. I got some. We we targeted uh, outside of Harrisonville this time, so people in Archie and Adrian were getting them in their mailbox, and I got feedback. They were so excited to see the, the mailers going beyond Harrisonville. So um, so that was cool. I th- I hopefully uh, we get people from that. I know one time we had people coming as far away as Ridge Hill. Somehow they found out about it. So uh, if you're one to, to put that out, you can help us by, if you use social media, go to our Facebook account and share out the Harvest Party information so that uh, people can not know about it or the people that you know will know about it. So that will be cool, and it will be a good time. All right, so... Before we jump into the study tonight, another uh, thing I wanted to mention was an announcement I was just talking about. And so uh, the Ziss family, uh, Eddie uh, was here. Eddie Ziss and his family were here oh some months ago. Uh, We tried to get together. Was when he started deputation, he started right when COVID hit, right when the lockdown came, and we had a plan for him to be here, and it it was delayed about a year. And they came through. I, I think it was this last spring, early summer. And uh, boy, did he do a great job with his presentation. Uh, and I said at that time, I've heard his presentation, honestly, a couple of times. I heard it at Midtown at Focus, Missions Focus. I heard it uh, up at Monmouth. He came to their conference, their missions conference. So I'd heard it a couple of times. But it was really beneficial to spend time with Eddie. And uh, we spent the afternoon, myself and Randy, with them and their family. Had a great time. And man, I could see his maturity and vision. And I'm very thankful um, Honey, yeah, I'm covered, but thanks. But I will take that. Um, and I was just really encouraged uh, by what God's doing in their life. They are really squared away. So, they got an announcement to make, and I, I don't want to take any of his thunder, so I'm going to go ahead. If we're ready, let that thing. Hey, everybody. Hi. It's this family to the Philippines. We've got some exciting news we wanted to share with you guys. We're so thankful for your prayers and financial support. We've reached 90% of our financial goal, but God has really opened up an awesome door. For those of you that know, we've petitioned the Philippines with a travel ban exemption in order to get into the Philippines, and we've been waiting five months for that paperwork. And by God's grace, guess what? We finally got our paperwork from the Philippines Bureau of Immigration. So please keep praying for November 18th. Pray for our our health to stay uh, up and healthy and pray for our travels. We love you guys. we're so thankful and pray for November 18th. We're going to the Philippines. So I wanted to let them tell you. Eddie was so excited the day he got that he he called me it was a little over a week ago and on a Wednesday, I believe, and he's like, uh, goes through this long process. I'm just sure that he's going he's gonna to tell me, sorry, we couldn't get entry. You know, he just, he really worked me good. And then, but we got it, you know, and he's all excited, so it was really pretty cool. So I wanted to share that with y'all. And, uh, you know, that, we probably ought to roll that on a Sunday morning as well, just because that's not, not as many people here tonight. But uh, actually, why don't we roll that on the fabulous 5th? That'd be good. We'll, do a, we'll put that out on the 5th. Um, and so, uh, but for those of you that know Eddie, they are approved missionaries. We don't have them on the supported uh, at this time. But, uh, man, if you want to support them, uh, they're, they're worthy of your investment. And uh, where they're going is a great location strategically. And so we support missions um, prayerfully, uh, financially, and, um, and uh, physically when we can. We want to get there on the ground with them and it's getting harder and harder for us to move around the, the world but we're going to pray that we can continue to do that they're great ambassadors for christ they're going to do a great job all right so um i don't have an outline because i've already i'm done with uh, the uh, church history but i wanted to go ahead and do this is what i'm going to do tonight is something that randy foster as a matter of fact has encouraged me to do more of and that is to tie the pieces together practically of church history to where we are because, for whatever reason, uh, God has just given me an aptitude to do that, and so I'm going to attempt that tonight, and uh, I've got some some material I'll work through with you before we do that though <clears throat> uh open your Bible to the book of revelation, and uh kind of also by way of just wrapping up this series on church history from Revelation chapter two uh Sharon had a good question, so i'm going to Sharon I'm going to give you the mic, and uh do you remember what the question do you want to Or do you want me to do it for you? Okay, I'll just do it for Sharon. She asked this question earlier. Good question. And by the way, kudos to Sharon. So Sharon had taken uh, on a piece of paper and went through all the the seven churches of Revelation and written down um, what the the angel, um, what the Lord was saying to the angel uh, concerning both their rebuke and their reward because every church has a reward. Uh, And so... um, and she had it lined out on her paper. And her question was, and I'll let you guys answer. So, um, like, if you, let's just look at Revelation 3 for just a moment. Um, you know, very familiar to us, the odyssey in church. And um, down in verse 19, it says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Now, when you think about that, does that sound like today's world that we live in? It does. So, in the church, I mean, God loves us. He, dies, uh, he died on the cross for us. He brings us into his family, and then he has to turn around and chasten a lot of us because, well, we're just not obedient, all right? And he says, uh, but this is what you can do. You can be zealous, and you can repent, right? Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And so uh, you can turn it around and be zealous about it. And so zeal, by the way, is one of the things we're lacking. Uh, Laodicea is, right? It's between the hot and the cold water, and it's lukewarm. That's the, that's the imagery that the Lord gives to the Laodiceans. He's saying, guys, you're lukewarm. There's no zeal. I would that you were cold or hot. So get zealous, get hot, get after it, right? And repent and get after the business of God. Oh, well, there's a promise. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Of course, and that door is going to open in chapter 4 and verse 1 at the, at the rapture, the catching way of the church. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him opposite of the Philadelphia church age. The door was opened by God. No man could shut it. Now this door is shut and Jesus can't open it. He's waiting for us to open this door. Um, And he says, um, if any man hear my voice and open the door, of course, he is the door of the sheepfold, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. So what's the Benny? Well, this is what Sharon was pointing out in this particular church. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. Now, very clearly in verse 21, it says, to him that overcometh speaking of individuals. So there's an individual burden in the church of Laodicea to be zealous and repent. As many as I have loved, I chasten, right? So he's very, he's dealing, this is the age, I mean, this is also Laodicea means right to the people. So right now that's what we're all, especially us Americans, we're all concerned about our civil liberties as we ought to be because we live in this weird bubble in history where individual liberty has been cherished, and, and governmental systems has been set up around it, and the government's been entrusted not to, the, not to the authority of the principality, but to the people, right? That's what, uh, at the Civil War, that's what Abraham Lincoln, so the presidents have stated it, uh, the Founding Fathers have documented it, the President Lincoln uh, fought a war over it at length, uh, even though he kind of violated some of that. But anyway, um, you know, the point is, is, that, is that it has been established, and what Lincoln said at the Gettysburg was, well, how long can we keep this? Right? Because it's very fragile. And it, it really, the founding fathers knew you can't have this kind of government without a moral people. And so the emphasis of Christ changing people from the inside out is most important. Right, If you have a secular, you can't have an American constitution and an American government without, with a secular uh, spirit. Right, With an atheistic, non, it just ain't going to work. Because you need to just go ahead and go become a socialist or communist or Marxist because that's what that's suited for. But Bible believers and people who know the Lord want liberty uh, and individual responsibility and all of those things. So it's interesting that we it's no accident that that we live in Laodicea and the issue is rights of the people. And so something that obviously is good in concept and precept becomes bad when we abuse our liberty, right? That's how liberty works. Liberty is good if you use it lawfully. Right. If you if you use the opportunity to serve God, well then, man, liberty is awesome. But if you use it as an occasion to the flesh, well, it's terrible. That's why the French Revolution failed miserably because they tried to have liberty without God and then you have a secular system that's terrible. All right, so, uh, so you can see that in history. You can see that in practicality. But what does that mean? Well, individually then, we have to make a decision to yield our rights and, and say, you know what, but the Bible says I have no rights. Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you do have the option to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. When we do that, we worship. We're worshiping God. We're giving up, uh, which we really don't have any right to resist God, but God gives us that liberty because it's the law of love. That's why in the New Testament, the law of love trumps everything. And love is not a small thing. People take it lightly. But when you look at love biblically, love is on display through Christ, and that is sacrifice. So Jesus didn't have to come to the earth, but he chose to come to the earth. He didn't have to die on the cross, but he did die on the cross because he loved the Father. The Father didn't have to send his Son, but he chose to send his Son. I mean, all of that is love, 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 love. And so we have liberty. All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient, right? If any man loved God, the same is known of him. We choose to do what God would have us to do because we love him. Not because you have to, because you want to. We don't even really have the capacity other than once we get the spirit of God, of course, he gives us that ability now to choose between our flesh and the spirit. So that's why we walk in the spirit, don't fill us the flesh. Okay, I say all that to say this. So we now have this decision in this time of rights of the people to choose to worship God. And then there's a Benny that uh, that Sharon was pointing out, which is to those that overcome will sit with him in his throne, right? And that's literally what it says. Sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. The benefit is ruling and reigning. And um, now, of course, all the church has that. This is really the core of her question. Would this apply to someone in Ephesus? Would this apply to someone in Smyrna? Would this apply to someone in, in another church age, right? And so generally, I do believe that these are talking about the particular... Uh, the particular difficulty of every church age over the last 2,000 years. So, it's giving us a help on how to overcome this age, which we just, I didn't just like in a nutshell, I just, just ran it all down for Laodicea. It's all about individual worship and y- yielding our rights for God's, God's will and, and willingly loving God and serving Him, which will put us in a position at the judgment seat of Christ to rule and reign with Him. However, uh, I do believe all saints uh, get in on various aspects of these. Now, so another, which is that we were having this conversation earlier, so I'm just kind of reiterating that. So I believe that just like the Bible, not all of it's written to you, but all all of it's, or not, all of it is not, let me say that right. Hang on, let me get my head right here on that. All the Bible is written um, for you, but not all of it's written to you, right? So the Old Testament is written for us. So we can understand so we see those pictures we understand the law we understand all those things but it was actually written to uh the israelites from moses forward and everything else was history leading us back to adam and then once jesus comes right we have the new testament that's written to us right after the church's birth and then of course paul receives those mysteries and then and this is something that is important even some of what's in the in this uh in the new testament is not written. It is written to us in this dispensation, but it is also applicable in the coming tribulation period, as we're talking about even here in Revelation. There's there's going to be those that, that uh, pick up the general epistles, and uh, there's some things in the general epistles that you have to twist them and pull them and stretch them and manipulate them to put into the church age. It just doesn't fit. Why is that? Because God doesn't want it to fit in the church age. He's dealing with what happens after the catching away. He's uniquely fit the New Testament for a believing Jew or Gentile, but primarily Jews in the tribulation, to be awakened spiritually, to read the four Gospels, see the four, right? They'll see Jesus from four different perspectives as the king. They'll see him as a servant. They'll see him as as the son of man. And then they'll see him as uh, the divinity of Jesus, the son of God, and, and John, or in the gospel of John. So you have four different views of Jesus. Then they'll come through that transitionary book of Acts and go, oh, that's how we got to what was going on around here. Uh, We rejected our Messiah. He went to the Gentiles, and they'll read through the Pauline epistles and go, man, Paul was a Jew, and this is the grace he had. And then they'll get to Hebrews, James, Peter, right? They'll begin in in the uh, general epistles, and all of a sudden, it'll be ding, 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 ding. And then by the time they get to Revelation, they'll be like looking at the going oh there's a the man of sin there's what's okay we got what's going on now and of course tying that all back in with the old testament which really completes it so uh so the bible is applicable um to to those in this dispensation uh, but it's not all written it's all written for us but not all written to us and then of course the same thing revelation in some ways chapters uh two and three are a lot like acts it's kind of a transitionary period after the catching way of the church, uh, those, those chapters will still be important, obviously, uh, to understand what's happening in Daniel's 70th week. So uh, I kind of went a little bit deep there, but for, just for, for practical application's sake, uh, even though they'll have a dual application, and there's, there's passages that do, uh, it's not wrong for us to read Matthew 5, which is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and apply it devotionally to us in the church age. It's not at all. But technically, it's the constitution for the coming kingdom after Jesus returns on the planet, and so um, and it, it's perfect. Also, in the it, it's perfect judgment for the coming tribulation. But for us, um, you know, Matthew twenty four, it's good to be have perseverance. But we do not endure to the end to be saved, right? Is it, so some of those things just don't apply to us right now, because Jesus was adjust, addressing Jews. His, he was offering the kingdom to the Jews. He has direct, explicit instruction to the Jews in their kingdom at that time. And, of course, at that time, the Age of Grace had not been uh, fully realized in, the, in all the mysteries because Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. The test- testator hadn't died. So when you get to the back of, of the New Testament and you're looking at Revelation, certainly, um, uh, and, and to, be more gener- to be more practical in the application, Every one of those churches, uh, just because it was uh, there's the promise to the Ephesians, um, let's say the first church mentioned in in Revelation chapter two, doesn't mean there's not a benefit to the Laodicean church at the end of the church age if we apply it. And so, practically speaking, this actually I was just thinking I was just telling Sharon I was thinking about this as I was mowing my lawn of all things. I had just I had just uh, preached last Sunday on try the spirits. This week it's going to be triumphing uh, and, uh, in love over the spirits. So last week was try the spirits. And so, um, and so the, when you look at that passage, you know, I was going through that, I was actually assessing, did I do a good enough job? And, uh, and should I have called, I, when I was putting that message together, I named names, including Pope Francis and, and some others. And, um, and I was kind of like, man, did I, did I, did I, should I have been so specific? And then the God encouraged me in the word, and uh, he reminded me of the church of Ephesus, because the, those people are robbing, which we covered in church history early on. They were, they're robbing, say they are apostles and are not. So apostolic authority is claimed, right? Uh, Peter is supposedly the first pope. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It's, it's not even in the Bible. It's not in history. Even. I mean, you have to make that up. There wasn't even a Roman Catholic church until 360. That was formalized, and so three thirty-six. You can go with Constantine, but so that's just like just totally ridiculous. But 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 the Roman Catholic Church claims that to this day that, that Peter has the keys of the kingdom, and uh, they're hidden under the floor at the Peter's Saint Peter's Basilica. And okay, so he said so they're claiming apostolic authority, a succession uh, from Peter. Well, listen, there is if he was saved, then I would be on equal footing with uh, with you know, the bouncer, Pope Francis, the Jesuit bouncer. But you know what? The Jesuit bouncer, if he's not born again, man, he don't have nothing. And he's certainly not the successor of Peter. Uh, We all, as my daddy used to say when I was a kid, everyone puts their pants on the same way. In Christ, you're a new creature, you know? And, And that's how we get access to God, through the Holy Ghost. It is not about apostolic succession through the hierarchy of the church. And that's why in their system, you must be You're not born again in the same sense that we, they use the same terminology, but really what they mean is you have to be born again through the church. You have to be born into the church. So they couple church membership with salvation. And and in in the biblical method, which we use here, we are very careful to say, listen, we don't recognize you as a member of the body, not just this local church, but the body of Christ until you confess Christ as Lord and Savior and trusting him and his finished work for salvation. And when you'll publicly show that by believer's baptism, which is prescribed by God, not us, then we're all like, amen. Then uh, we believe your profession, which is easy to do in America because nobody's getting persecuted. But in most places, historically around the world, um, and even to this day, many people uh, are persecuted for their faith. And so public baptism is a, like if you're a Muslim and you publicly get baptized, you know, a lot of times that's it, you're a dead man. And I uh, was talking with a friend of mine who had uh, converts in, in uh, Iraq before the Gulf War, during the Gulf War, and uh, and he was like, he was he was a little bit taken aback because of their zeal for baptism, and he realized as they were putting all their they were they were um, they were preparing to die. I mean, it wasn't like hey, I'm just going to get baptized. They were preparing <clears throat> their families <coughs> for their death, and they were still getting baptized because they understood that we were we're identifying with Christ. So baptism is a big deal. It doesn't save you, uh, not water baptism. Uh, so it's, a, it's just a statement. So in the, in the biblical uh, economy, then what we would say is when, you're, when you identify with Christ publicly, well, well, certainly you're part of the body. We identify with you. And that's why we also remove members um, who say, hey, I identify with Christ, and, I identify with the, and now I identify with your church, but I'm going to live like I'm lost openly and just stick it in everyone's face. Well, at that point, we say, "Hey, we love you. We're not saying you're not saved, but if you're going to say that you know Jesus and live like that, you need to do that with Satan, because we don't do that here. We're sanctified and set apart. That's not how we roll. Not that everybody doesn't deal with sin daily; we all do, but we can't continue in sin that grace may abound. God forbid. How shall we continue in sin? Right? Um, and so, so, uh, so the promises of Revelation uh, do apply. So when you, so I was. As I was mowing my lawn, I was thinking about, you know what, Lord, I did the right thing. God really kind of ministered to me. He's like, Brian, you did the right thing by naming and names and, and saying the names you said in particular. Because most of them, also charismatics do that. They believe in apostolic succession and, and supernatural powers. And they deceive many, prosperity gospel, all those things I was talking about Sunday. I should say those things. How do I know that? Is it because it's written somewhere in Revelation 3? No. But it is mentioned in Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus. They tried those that were apostles and said they were not. And God's like, good job. You did a good thing. So this is what I can say then. At the judgment seat of Christ, I feel pretty good about that. Now, I also don't want to drop the ball right on what it says in Ephesians, or in Ephesians, in Revelation 3, and supping with Jesus. I don't want to drop the ball on my daily devotion with Jesus and spending time with the door open and fellowshipping with Jesus. That's really where it's at. Individual time with God—that's that's the thing you're going to fight for in the eye to see it, opening that door because He's the door of the sheepfold, and so so having that 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 key of David that was in the last uh, the last dispensation or the last uh, church age I should say rather not dispensation, um, we know that we 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 talk about the key of David. The problem is we got access to the door and we won't open it. We know where the source is. We just don't open it. It's not like we're searching for it. It wasn't until the Philadelphian church age that this this door was available to most people. And so God opened it. Now people shut it and don't even open it. He's like, man, you've got the key. You just need to open it. So, And so, obviously, that's got to be taken care of in this dispensation. Other, or, forgive me, not dispensation. Church age, uh, I keep misstating that, and, uh, and in this dispensation. However, if you lived in the first century, and you were dealing with all these false apostles that said that... Uh, you know that they were of the lineage of Jesus, uh, apostles, and you should listen to them. And, and by the way, you should also keep the law of Moses and grace isn't necessary and all those other messages that they were bringing. And you tried them and, uh, and found out that they were not legit. Well, man, you would be rewarded at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. But conversely, if you happen to have the, the, the Scripture, you know, Paul said to Timothy, bring the Scripture, right? When he was in prison, bring the Scripture. Well, obviously, Paul wanted to keep the door open and he wanted to keep fellowship with God personally. So that was a long long way just to say a simple answer, which is certainly every aspect of all seven churches uh, can be applied in your practical life. And as a local church, you really want to make sure, because these are written to churches, not to individuals, but there's an individual application that you can draw from every single church. So as you go through those seven churches and you look at them, you want to make sure that you're applying that to your life. And as a church then, as me as a pastor, I look at those things and say, are we as a church applying that? It'd be foolish for me not to look at all the seven churches and make sure we're not doing all those things that we can and use it as a checklist, kind of like a, like a wellness checkup. So that's a long answer to a short question, but that's, that does answer your question, I think, sufficiently. So, and as an individual, even though it's written to churches, I recommend individuals look at those as well and apply the same things because individuals make up churches. And uh, at the end of the day, you're responsible for what you're, you you know, not, especially if you're not the pastor or you're not a deacon or you're not, you know, you're just, just in the church. You're responsible for what you know and who you influence. And so you apply that to yourself, your family, uh, the relationships that God gives you, and you'll be accountable for that at the judgment seat of Christ. All right. All right. So let me do this. I want to kind of transition here. So we've looked at the seven churches, and uh, I'm glad we could kind of start off. Did that... Open up any more questions? You got any more questions? Or Okay. I want to just kind of work through um, some of this church history with Laodicea. We've already talked about how Laodicea is uh, 1900 AD. That's when the ESV came out, or the I see, English Standard Version. Yeah, and then it had the American Standard. And so we mark it then. Uh, that's when the, the, really the, uh, the, the uh, work to try to corrupt uh, the English, uh, particularly the King James Bible started happening. Um, And then uh, Laodicea, um, you know, begins around that time through the 20th century. I'm not going to get through it. We've already covered this. Um, You know, I'm going to skip through a lot of this. Um, I just talked about a lot of this, but here, here we go. So Laodicean period is marred by materialism, intellectualism, like no other time in history. And so that's a time of great apostasy, uh, which we've talked about as well. And this is a different outline, by the way, than you had, so it's, it's a little different. But I'm going to take you to some just practical church history stuff. Uh, I did, I'm glad, I wanted to show you this, though, because it, it does kind of stir up, the imagery kind of stirs up some things, because today, you know, it's all rights of the people, power to the people, and, uh, and so it's all about civil rights, um, and uh, that's how the, it's all broken down here. I'm not going to get too far into this, because we've already covered it. So Let me get on, move along here, um, and so you this kind of brings us to where I want to be. So the text in revelation fourteen through twenty two gives us God's counsel, God's resolve, and then the conclusion of Laodicea, which we've already covered. So this is the stuff I wanted to vi- visit with you guys about tonight that I didn't really do justice to uh, last uh, when we got together. Uh, I touched on it slightly, but let's just talk about some of the influences of Laodicea, and why we are where we are today. First of all, you guys know Charlie Darwin, and uh, um, Charles Robert Darwin is his name, born February 12th, 1809, in Shropshire, England. Uh, he died April 19th of 1882. Uh, he was an English naturalist, and uh, his theory of evolution, of course, is in, uh, and uh, natural selection became the foundation for the modern evolutionary studies. Um, uh, Darwin was uh, shocking. He he uh he, when he came out with his suggestion that animals and humans shared the same common ancestry. Today that's just common a common belief, right? As I came up in school, it was just assumed everybody, you know, came from a monkey. Um and so uh, but his uh his non-religious biology appealed to the rising class of professional scientists. And by the time of his death, evolution, evolutionary imagery had spread through all science, literature, and politics. Uh, now, Darwin was an agnostic um, and was a, um, accorded the ultimate British accolade of, of burial at Westminster Abbey in London. Somebody, it must have been Brian Clark, or somebody I know who was recently at that location, took a picture of, uh, of, the, of a wall there uh, giving tribute to him, and he formulated his theory in private in 1837 to 39 after returning from a voyage around the world um, aboard the HMS Beagle. But it wasn't until two decades later that he finally gave his full public expression on the origin of the species, which most of us us have at least heard of if we haven't actually read it, a book that has deeply influenced modern Western society and thought. So the main influence changing the direction of scientific belief is Charlie Darwin, Uh, but not to be left out. You know, he had, there were some other influences, and um, theistic evolution, uh, this is what's important too that's happened during this this time. Some sought to to compete with this on a scientific level, which is where we get teaching like theistic evolution, and theistic evolution mixes God and evolution. Uh, So God created it, but then let it evolve to what it is today, and of course that takes much longer than 6,000 years or so, especially if you're using carbon dating. So uh, that's really then, it also makes Genesis 6, or Genesis 6, Genesis chapter 1 and the six-day creation a um, an allegory or a myth. When you go to Baptist churches in this town where you're going to hear that, I right? we had a couple visit one to do some ministry one day, and they came back, they were appalled uh, because that's what one of the guys in the pulpit was, was saying, right here in Harrisonville, and I love the guy, he's a friend of mine. Yes, Either one. There's obviously species species that evolve, you know, as they change, you know. But we would be talking about uh, both because they w- because we you know the Bible teaches not we believe the Bible teaches the literal six day creation. So uh, he said he did set things in motion per se. He's programmed. Now I give Darwin a little bit of gr- grace because he didn't have technology like he does today. Today it's really absurd to think about. Um, that evolution because science can't prove it it's much more you know even when i was in school um you know most of us in this room all of us i would say in this room oh not to date ourselves but uh let me roll this out is this in the shot so i'll put it on this side of the board I don't remember how it how it quite went, but I think it was something like this. Uh, th- this was like cell cell development back in the day. So you had like three layers to the cell. There was a nucleus, uh, and then some other thing, and then the outer area of a cell. And that how many of you were taught that? That's what I was taught. And so. Um, now that now they know, so if that's what you really knew back in the day, and that's about what Charles Darwin knew, if he knew that, it may have been just a hype. I don't even know. I'm sure he, they had microscopes in the 1800s, so he he could have figured that out. So they could see as far as they could see. Now, I don't want to date myself, but in the ni- in the 1980s, I can say this: that was still being taught. But by the 1990s. And only 10 years later the electron microscope had drilled down so far into the cell and then they started discovering I don't know how to how to do this right but you know what I'm saying DNA and you start hearing about DNA you start hearing about you know how all this DNA is connected and it's and they're getting down to this really fine uh, science. Well, now they find out, once they get this electron microscope going, that there's this, this thing, s- cell is not so simple. So inside of this cell is, are, are these uh, biological mechanisms, for lack of a better word, that exist. Biological mechanisms, and that's a really good way adjective to describe it, Uh, there's these biological mechanisms that are pre-programmed and that we cannot figure out that. How does that work? We don't know. We can sure monkey around with it. They're doing it right now, this current virus, uh, uh, this current uh, whatever it is that they're shooting everybody in the arm with, mRNA, Uh, that's based on some of that technology. Uh, They're harnessing what the biology does, but they're finding out that the biology is pre-programmed. There's like no way to, to understand this because, well, does it have a mind of its own? Well, it has a spirit. I mean, God knows it's the flesh. God designed it. So the further we go down, go uh, with science, true science, the more we understand there's a creator. And they're not going to call it, you know, God. So what do they call it? Well, they call it intelligent design. But you know what? When your kids go to school, you're still going to get this old-fashioned... They're not going to teach this. They'll talk all about the DNA and all that stuff. But they're still going to give you... They're not going to talk about this either. They're going to still push evolution. And you're going to be an idiot stick if you don't agree. Uh, Because evolution is basically... It turns humans to animals. So that's basically what they're trying to do. Humans equal animals. Under the under true science, humans equal um, divine. I'll put purpose in creation, which is God. Right? There's a God. There's a Creator, and they you know the devil doesn't want anybody looking at anybody like that. I remember when I was at the mission, a friend of mine who spent a lot of time in prison as a matter of fact, he had to go back. I think he's there again, but he um uh, had a bad drug he has a bad drug problem in history, but he says, you know brian when they, when you treat someone like an animal long enough, they'll be an animal they'll act, they'll live like it they'll act like it meaning he was talking to me about prison cage a guy up long enough, and he'll start acting like an animal and so Uh, Guess what, though? You start teaching people long enough that they're just animals and they're not, they're not, they have any divine creation in them. There's no, there's nothing, God didn't, they're not fallen from a state that God intended them to be. No, no. You're just another animal. That's why you can just, there's a reason, just biblically speaking, and I know this is really awkward to say with this particular company, but there's a reason that they're likened to dogs. Because even the procreation, this beautiful procreation process that God, as intended between Adam and Eve, a man and a woman, which should be elevated and exalted, gets debased to that of animal instinct and do what you want to do, you know, 60s. So, so, so that's, just, that's good discussion. I've got to keep going, or we're never going to get through this. So, um, and so um, Charles Darwin, by the way, many people don't realize uh, he was not a scientist. He was an amateur biologist with a degree in theology from Anglican University. Yeah, he's an Anglican, like N.T. Wright, sitting there on uh, your Bible app telling you things. He doesn't even rightly divide the word himself, but that's another story. So his theory was really a synthesis of the fossil record with the contemporary human animal plant life, and, let him, and, and, he, and he synthesized that, which is where I'm, I want to go with uh, some other folks here and move along, because another big influence on Leodicea historically, is psychotherapy. And uh, Sigmund Freud, which many of you, you know, have heard about, we all know about him, 1856 to 1939. He developed a new way of thinking, or supposedly, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, But he was an Austrian, and uh, from the Czech Republic, he died in London in 1939. Um, And so, he was a a neurologist, and uh, he is the founder of psychoanalysis. uh, And he may justly be called uh, the most influential intellectual legislator of his age uh, his creation of psychoanalysis was one of the theory of human psyche a, a therapy for the relief of its ills and the optic for the interpretation of culture and society despite repeated criticisms attempted refutations and qualifications of Freud's work it's it, spe- it uh, its spell remained powerful well after his death and in fields far removed from psychology as it narrowly as it is narrowly defined if, as uh, the American sociolo- sociologist Philip Reef once contended, psychological man replaced such earlier notions as political, religious, or economic man as the 20th century's dominant self-image. It's no small measure due to the power of Freud's vision and the seeming inexhaustibility of the intellectual legacy he left behind. So no longer was the problems with mankind a result of sin against the holy God. It was now a problem uh, with the way man thought. The problems with the mind and the thinking could uh, be corrected; it would fix all those other problems. And under this whole system, God and the Bible is reduced to a crutch, needing weak-minded people who cannot make it on their own. Of course, again appealing to humanistic mindset. So, on one hand, with evolution, you're just some animal creature that came from a spark that was you know, erupted by a bolt of lightning once and just slowly evolved. But then Freud comes along and says you're this complex psychological creature. And, um, and, of course, if you believe anything else, you know, the Bible is just a bunch of mythology, and that's, that's not going to help you because it has no bearing, because uh, this is based in humanism, human logic, human wisdom, and, of course, that fails you every time. And so, <clears throat> um, of course, the influence of psychotherapy reached into pediatrics and was espoused by men like Dr. Benjamin Spock, who dominated the child development field for most of the century. When I got saved in the, in the 80s, Spock was still being quoted. And, uh, and, so, um, and so he, w- he was, uh, uh, it was worse because le- it led to a very narcissistic mentality of child rearing that dominates the USA to this very day. And so, and so you have that influence. And then you have humanistic philosophy. And this is important because this is George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. And, um, and so George, um, I just got his picture there. Uh, he was born in Germany, and we're going back to the Philadelphian church age, but Hegel actually came from a theological perspective, and so he wasn't, this guy I don't think was necessarily initially just out to undo everything. Um, I don't know. I don't know him personally, but uh, <clears throat> he was a he was a great philosophical system builder, and I, I can kind of understand that. I'm a, kind of a systems guy myself. I get systems, and so he analyzes things and builds systems. You know, that's what he does. And so um, he was following upon the work of a fellow named Immanuel Kant, uh, which you've probably heard of before, K-A-N-T, uh, jo- Johann uh, Gittler Fitch, and Frederick Schelling. Uh, and so these were all classical German philosophers. And, uh, and so as an absolute idealist inspired by Christian insights and grounded in the mastery of a fan- uh, fantastic uh, fund of concrete knowledge, Hegel found a place for everything, logical, natural, human, and divine. So he kind of segmented up all these things. There was logic, there was natural, human, and divine. So he didn't, he didn't say God didn't exist. So I just want to be clear on that. And in a dialectical scheme that repeatedly swung from thesis to antithesis and back again to a higher and richer synthesis. So, uh, and you'll, you'll even hear me use those words. So you have, you have a thesis... You have an antithesis, right, and th- the opposite of it, and then you have you bring them together, and you get a synthesis. So for those of us bio- biology, right, we we understand photosynthesis, <coughs> which is the combination of the sun and the chlorophyll brings energy and it synthesizes, it brings it together and creates something. It's like beans and rice make protein, right? So uh, so that's not a completely <laughs> it's not a completely crazy concept, um, and so. He has this dialectical scheme, and uh, and his influence has been fertile in the reactions. And he as it was as, as fertile in the reactions that he pre- precipitated. Uh, <clears throat> and so there was this fellow named Soren Kierkegaard, uh, the Danish existentialist, and the Marxist who turned to social action, in logical positives and G. E. Moore and Bertrand Russell. Now Bertrand Russell, many have probably heard of. who who were pioneering uh, figures in British analytical philosophy as his positive impact. Now, everything I read to you just now was secular. This is not a spiritual—this is just the facts as history records them. Now, let me give you my opinion. He paved the way for human logic to become the absolute authority instead of the Word of God through his systematic approach and evolution of philosophy based on human logic. Immanuel Kant challenged this theology— And both Hegel and Kant examined theology as philosophy and wrote on the merits of Christianity's authority. Since the scripture is not to be synthesized with human logic or enlightenment, but instead uh, revealed through the teaching of the Holy Spirit, the view of the word of God was not authoritative, but subjective, leading to justifying human philosophies that are not found in the scripture, like socialism. So You take Matthew chapter 5, you can pull it out of context. Socialism exists in the Bible, for sure, within the context of the church. But with the human rationale can take it out and apply it any way they want without the necessity of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so it's pulled out of context. So, um, and so the Sermon on the Mount is a good philosophy, but without Jesus Christ, it cannot succeed. And you can see where the problem would go then. So you have some Marxists uh, standing up saying, we all should be equal. Well, you know, Jesus sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. It does. The only difference is Jesus isn't ruling and reigning. And human, human behavior is not going to be subject uh, to, to itself. They're going to be rebellious, and you can't trust humans because the Bible tells us we've all sinned, right? So that's not a good thing, and it, isn't, it wasn't in the early 1900s with the Bolsheviks. It wasn't with Chairman Mao. It wasn't with Adolf Hitler. It wasn't with Stalin. It wasn't with Pol Pot, and it ain't now, and it isn't now, depending on your English. And so... Um, so a lot of that mindset, that philosophy where you assimilate everything uh, comes from those, those guys coming all the way out of the 1800s, really in the Philadelphia church age uh, with that enlightenment. Okay, so religion then gets attacked by religious uh, means, and it took some while for this to develop. In Genesis 3, the first attack on mankind by the serpent is an attack against the words of God. Yea, hath God said. Satan has not had to change his tactics in 6,000 years because of mankind. Uh, hasn't changed the thinking process no matter what Freud might think so from 1845 through the 1880s several new Greek texts are published and promoted by uh, Brooke Westcott and Fenton Hort Uh, both of these men were professors at Cambridge in England which are religious at that time were still considered religious universities this Greek text along with the Vaticanus became the basis for a new English Bible to replace the authorized version and this work was carried on in secrecy And uh, any disagreed passages were decided by Westcott and Hort, and the review panel had no deciding vote. And now Westcott and Hort, both men, hated the the King James Bible, the authorized version, and the preeminence that it had, and they wanted to replace it. Westcott and Hort knew all their texts, did not agree, yet they continued to believe that they were better than the authorized version. So they had a faulty uh, Greek text to start with. Hort denied the reality of Eden ever existing, and that the fall of Adam and Eve is not significantly different from us, which is crazy. Uh, Hort did not believe the infallible word of God. Hort was unimpressed with the evangelicals of his day, but thought highly of Darwin. Hort was an adherent to the teaching of a known opium addict named Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Hort was a lover of Greek philosophy. Hort did not believe in literal eternal hell, but did believe in purgatory uh, with another chance of repentance. Hort rejected the idea that Christ's atonement was satisfactory for all men. Hort believed in baptism Regeneration, meaning you get saved by being baptized, not in the spirit but in water. Westcott and Hort both believed and hosted friends uh, that investigated ghosts and other supernatural phenomena, believing in them under the name of Ghostly Guild. Westcott believed in Genesis one through three was a myth. Westcott denied the existence of Moses and David, and Jesus he used them because they were well known in poetry. He thought poetry was more believable than history. Westcott did not believe that Christ's miracles were real. Heaven is a state, not a place. Christ's second coming is spiritual, not physical. How about that? Those are the dudes translating your Bible. That's where you get your Greek text <clears throat> for all new translation. And then the Bible versions that came from that were the uh, revised version in 1881, which was published by Westcott and Horde in England. Then in 1901, the American Standard Version. And then 1952, the revised Standard Version. In 1960 was the new American Standard Version, uh, which was an update to the ASV, the American Standard Version of 1901. And then in 1971, you get the Living Bible. In 73 you get the new International Version, made by the World Council of Churches, never minding that every time you find the word council in your New Testament with an I, not S-E-L, but C-I-L, it's always against Christ. In 1982, you get the new King, King James Version. In 1994... Uh, you get the 21st century uh, King James Version. In 1996, you get the New Living Translation, which is an updated Living Bible. In 2002, you get the message when we planted this church, which is basically a paraphrase. And so that's just an example of some of the... And not a one of those is going to be based on the TR. Even though they said the New King James was, it really isn't, because you, all you got to do is look at it and find that it prefers the, the uh, corrupt Greek text. So there you are. All right, so a lot of that that synthesis... Ends up affecting. That's what. That's when we talk about critical text. That's really what we're, they're synthesizing. What? Well, they're not taking the historical repository of of uh, text, which is what the King James gang did, uh, and translating from that reliable text. Um, they are they are bringing in two texts, Tischendorf's text, and the uh, which is Vaticanus, and then the Sinaiticus, and they bring these two texts in, and then they prefer them where it suits them because what's being synthesized is human logic. And their supposed uh, intellect. And, uh, and they get to basically fashion it however they want. And that's going on to this day. Okay, so during the time of Laodicea, technology has r- rapidly advanced. And I talked about this last week as well. So, uh, so this is, religion's important. We just touched on that. So religion starts to get twisted. And Bible believers in Laodicea, uh, man, you got the technology, you got the 5G technology. Um, you know it's rapidly advancing unlike any other time in history uh, some of y'all have lived through more changes in your lifetime like joe sparks when he was Reed sparks who's still uh, you know with us 93 years old she went from an uh, industrial age to the space age to the information age uh, to now the well i missed something there space age computer age Information age, it's crazy. All these ages, things have changed so rapidly. For most of human history, it's been agricultural up until the 1800s with the uh, Industrial Revolution. And so, <clears throat> and so it's really been incredible, the changes that have occurred. And so technology has a lot to do with that. And so Bible believers have been fragmented. I talked about that last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. It, go back and listen to what I, talked, I said last week as it applies but I want to I transition to the great men of the Odyssey because there's an answer. Now, I'm going to go back before, I'm going back a little bit because it parallels the same timeline. As you can see, this transition coming up with these uh, Westcott and Hort. You also have great Bible men like George Mueller, uh, 1805 to 1898, uh, known in history as a man of prayer. Um, he didn't know Jesus as Savior until he was about 20, and he freely admits that he lived a life of sin and pleasure, even though he was studying to become a Lutheran minister. And he learned the truth <clears throat> when he attended a house meeting while studying in Halley. And, uh, and from that point on in his life, he, he performed uh, or he had profoundly changed and decided that he wanted to be a missionary and told his father. His father was unhappy because he had sent him to, the Lutheran, to be a Lutheran minister where he could live an easy life off the state. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. By the way, he was obviously a German. And so he moved from Germany to England to work with the London Missionary Society. After several years of uh, more study uh, to learn English, he became a pastor of a church of Devonshire. And at his church, he changed the way things were done by doing away with his salary, doing away with uh, with rental pews. From this time on, he trusted in God to provide for his needs. And boy, was he a prayer warrior. And so uh, without making his needs known to anyone but God, he uh, he obtained and dis, uh, dispersed more than seventy-five or seven million five hundred thousand dollars. That is a huge amount in um, eighteen hundreds. hundred and twenty-two thousand people had been taught in his schools, and uh, about two hundred eighty-two thousand Bibles, 1,500 New Testaments, were distributed through him. One hundred and twelve thousand books, pamphlets, and tracts had been distributed. Missionaries had been aided in all parts of the world. Over ten thousand orphans had been helped. That is George Mueller. That's the kind of Christians that were uh, coming along back then. Most of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon. won't take a lot of time on him. Uh, great preacher. Um, I'm going to just move past him because if you haven't heard of him, there's so much out there. He's a pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle. Interesting thing about him, never went to Bible college. Spoke various languages. Um, was, was, uh, was definitely caught between the Calvinists and, and uh, evangelicals, so to speak, as we would be today um he wrote over 3500 sermons uh he's still quoted widely today and very most most of us his library by the way half of his libraries up here at the southern baptist seminary up north of the river it's worth going to look at and uh and uh we go up there from time to time for different reasons and have a look-see but uh the family kept the other half i don't know where it's at probably in england or something But uh, half of it was given to William Jewell College. William Jewell didn't want it anymore because they've gotten so liberal they could care less about Charles Spurgeon. So Midwestern Theological Seminary, who isn't a bastion of conservative theology, but still better, uh, they decided that they disconnected from them, and when they did that, they negotiated to get that library there, and they built a whole wing up there Midwest. You can go in and do a tour. It's pretty cool. All right, so anyway, great preacher, very uh, influential in England. i got to keep moving. Then there's this guy, uh, James Robinson Graves, and James Robinson Graves was a Civil War era pastor, publisher, and author, and he was born in Chester, Vermont, April 10th, 1820. And I'm going somewhere with all this, so just keep with me. Now, Graves barely survived the death of his father. Nonetheless, he was born again and baptized um, uh, uh, by an elder Hodges at the North Springfield Vermont Baptist Church. His father is believed to be a a descendant of the French Huguenots, so he had that Huguenot background from uh, Europe. And his mother believed to be a descendant of the German physician and scholar Schell. Graves was very intelligent. At 19, he he began his teaching career that led him through Ohio, Kentucky, and eventually Tennessee. Graves taught himself while teaching others, and he learned the languages, including Greek. And every year, he studied college courses on his own. His influence among the church was mostly important among the Baptists. It was Monumental. In 1845, at the age of 25, he established the Vine Street Classical and Mathematical Academy in Nashville, Tennessee. Shortly thereafter, he assumed (coughs) the leadership of the Baptist Church. In 1846, he joined the staff of the Tennessee Baptist and became the sole editor in the autumn of 1846. His ministry paralleled the Southern Baptist founding and establishment in the United States in 1845. And uh, the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845. The Southern Baptist Convention was formed during the pre-Civil War era. Graves was editor of the Tennessee Baptist, <clears throat> which grew from a thousand in circulation in 1846 to 13,000 in 1859, making the largest Baptist paper in the world at the time and most influential among the Baptist circles. Now, why is this important to us? Because Baptists are noted historically, and even to this day, we're a bunch of dummies. But God, throughout history, has brought some of the smartest guys, uh, to help to help keep the church uh, on, kind of online, but also to be able to stand against all of this uh, philosophy and humanistic philosophy that's been raging out of Europe. Graves was a big part of that. Now, this is before there was a Southern Baptist Convention. Of course, he came with the advent of it. He was right there with them. And the SBC back then was not what you had today. <clears throat> so, um, and so uh, Graves is credited with establishing Landmark Baptist Movement and in in a response to the Baptist churches of the Southern uh, Convention moving away from a literal interpretation of Scripture and the autonomy of the local New Testament church governance, Graves was laying the groundwork for future generations of fundamental Baptists of the 20th century. (coughs) Excuse me. And landmarkism, which is still a thing today among uh, Baptists, um, I'll get to that in just a moment. Um, um, Excuse me, I'm having some difficulty. They, the, Graves was laying the groundwork for, for the fundamental Baptists of the 20th century who would move away from the denominational governance of the church for the same scriptural reasons. Graves established the Articles of Faith, which fundamentalists would later utilize in the 20th century as they formed their fundamental Baptist associations. Now, landmarkism has developed into a very strong belief that there is, uh, is not, broader, there's not a broader body of Christ outside the visible Baptist congregation. So uh, ironically, it was Graves who ha- helped firm up the dispensational position of many Baptists through his articulate and well-studied position. Today, many landmark Baptists are so extreme in their view and the autonomy of the local church that they have problems rightly dividing the word dispensationally and misapply passages written to Hebrews <clears throat> uh, to the church and the concept of what's called the Baptist Bride, which used to be raging out, down here in Springfield a few uh, decades ago. And so, um, and so that's interesting history, and it may bore you to death. I got a lot more I could say about that, but for time's sake, I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit. But uh, despite the differences, uh, Graves he believed in the local church that was called out through the disciples prior to Pentecost, and uh, we don't adhere to that position here at HBF. But he still offered a lot, Um, and uh, and he believed because we understand that God was still offering the kingdom to Israel. Up until Acts chapter seven, Graves launched the movement with two other prominent Baptist pastors of the day, James Pendleton and Siren Dayton, and the Bible, uh, the Bible Baptist publication called Our Heritage. Called Pendleton the Prophet, the Gra- prophet Graves the Warrior, and Dayton was a sword bearer. And Pendleton's church, the Manual, designed for the use in Baptist churches, is still in print today. So these guys have big influence here in America. And so despite the difference, uh, we could we would hold on to the body of Christ, keeping in mind his position was a response to extreme overreach of denominations over the local church. So a lot of these guys, what they did is they rebelled against Rome. They rebelled against the Church of England. And then they said, we're local church to, the, to an extreme... I think I've still got the other one. Sorry, hon, I haven't done that yet. And so... Um, they were really, they really were really suspicious of, of hierarchical authority because of Rome, the Church of England, and all of that. So they were extreme local church to a fault. Um, so, uh, and you can still see some of that in the way we do, not we, but the way some of the Baptist churches do ordinances to this day. So, at any rate, I say all that to say, because I'm, I'm taking you somewhere. I know this is a long road, but I'll get there. Um, it's believed that Graves' work had a profound impact on Do- Do- Dr. Lois Insminger and J. Frank Norris, causing them to become ardent premillennial dispensationalists. That was a good thing. Uh, but was, what wasn't so good was some of the Baptist bride stuff that came out of it. I'm going to skip over some details. You can read about this on your own. you got the name. You can look it up. But here's the practical application. This history is important to understand when you minister the body of Christ outside of the small circles of Baptists associated with HBF. And, uh, and you can see in a brighter picture how some of these things are still going on today. So let me move along. So there's this guy um, named Benjamin Harvey Carroll. This guy is a character. I got a lot I could say about him. I don't have time. Let me just kind of give you the shorthand. This dude was rough son of a gun, if I can say that. And uh, he was brought up in, that, in the Civil War era. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, born to a preacher who made his living farming in Arkansas and Texas. Carroll made a a false profession and was baptized as a 13-year-old boy. He immediately realized on his way home he wasn't regenerate and soon asked the church to remove his name from the rolls. He was encouraged at that time to continue to read the Bible, and that he did in his unregenerate state. He became increasingly cynical and hardened toward God. (coughs) Excuse me. This is his own quote. He says, I could not make them understand, but from that time on, I read the Bible as never before, read, read it all, read it many times, studied it in the light of my infidelity, marked its contradictions and fallacies from Genesis to Revelation. This guy becomes a, a Bible critic. <clears throat> he, hates, he hates the Bible. He, he thinks it's all a joke. He's bought, you know why? He's bought into German rationalism. He's a really bright guy. So he enters Baylor University at that time in Independence, Texas at the age of 16, a desired a degree in law and studied it intently. <clears throat> he devoured Greek, Roman, and Oriental philosophies, chewed it all up, sought man's wisdom while rejecting God's wisdom. In 1861, when Texas succeeded from the Union, and though Carroll held a strong conviction about maintaining the Union, he served as a Texas Ranger and protected the Texas frontier. After serving a year, Carroll took leave to be with his father, who passed away at their home in Texas. His father went to glory, knowing his son was lost. But his mother continued to pray for B.H. While, while home, Carroll fell in love and married a young woman who refused to accompany him to West Texas frontier. The loss of his father and the d- rejection of his wife cast Carol into deeper despair and caused him to seek death because he couldn't find anything in his life worth living for. And he enlisted in the 17th Regiment of the Texas Infantry, and lived a life of sin, and during his time in the military, he practiced his oratory skills in a debate at the campfire, often taking the side of the north, bringing compelling arguments on the way on, the, on why the north winning would be a better solution than the south's victory. Harold would seek danger and death and almost found death as he was nearly mortally wounded in battle in the Battle of Mansfield on April eighth of eighteen sixty four For weeks, he was near death, but God spared his life, no doubt because of his mother's prayer. So his mother encouraged her son to become Uh, to come with her to a Methodist camp meeting in the fall of 1865. my Amy's uh, grandfather was saved at a Methodist camp meeting. Uh, uh, In a wooden shed at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning, an unimpressed Carol endured the sermon only to find that he deemed it to be the simple-minded preacher, uh, honing honing in on him with direct questions that only the Holy Spirit could be prompting. It was at that moment that God broke Carol's heart. And Carol, along with the rest of those gathered, were asked to experiment to see if God was real and come forward receiving the doctrine of Christ as it had been delivered. Carol's records of his own writings were that of skepticism and criticism of Christianity was so well known that men began to shout at him as he walked forward at the prompting of the preacher. They assumed he was mocking the minister. And so Carol publicly told them that he was indeed trying this experiment because his heart was cold as ice. As the congregation sang, the words of Christ came to Carol's mind. In Matthew 11:28-30, flooded into his heart. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you will learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So Carol was immediately transformed. Spent the night reading *Pilgrim's Progress* by his mother's bedside, and he said, "When I came to the pilgrims, uh, when I came with the pilgrims to Beulah Land from the Doubting Castle," I could be seen uh, no more forever. My, uh, my soul was filled with with such rapture and joy I had never before experienced. I knew that I would preach. Now preach he did. So Carol married Evelyn Virginia Bell on December 28th of 19, or 1866, and he struggled financially in the post-war economy and struggled as a teacher. He took on an itinerant preaching as a part-time pastoring, and Carol was called to pastor New Hope Baptist Church in, in Goat Neck, Texas. His reputation as a pastor grew and he was called to preach at First, at first Baptist of Waco and Carroll was there for 28 years and he had a prolific ministry known as for his oratory debating skills he quickly became a Baptist hero as he won well publicized debates with a local Methodist ministers that baited the local Baptists. Carroll's influence grew among Baptists and Texans and he became a prominent a pro, a proponent I'm sorry of the temperance movement which was huge back then Carroll's role as an educator was substantial Though he never completed his university degree, Carroll was noted for reading 300 pages per day, and though he was not degreed, he was a noted theologian. When Baylor University was chartered, chartered Carroll uh, became the president of the trustee board. In 1894, the University of Baylor developed a Bible department, and Carroll had been appointed Chair of Exegesis Systematic Theology, and then was appointed Dean of the entire Bible Department. Carroll was instrumental in establishing the Baylor Theological Seminary in 1905. In 1907, he decided the seminary would be separate from the University of Baylor and established Southwestern Theological Seminary, which is existing to this day. He was the first to appoint a chair of evangelicalism in seminary. The new campus opened in South Fort Worth, Texas in 1910, and the first year of the seminary had seven faculty and 126 students. In 1910, Carroll recommended a young preacher named J. Frank Norris, pastor of First Baptist Church of Fort Worth, Texas, uh, and this guy, this, uh, J. Frank's sensational style of preaching and public attacks of other ministers eventually led Carroll to withdraw membership from First Baptist of Fort Worth. So Carroll published at least 33 books, and his 13-volume uh, and interpretation of the English Bible is probably his best-known work. Now, why do I bring him up? And that, that's you may, yeah. Why did you bring him up? And why did I say all that? Because this guy here is who is one of the keys. And it's not in what I read to you, but he was able to articulate uh, biblically the same positions that we take dispensationally. He's also able to stand in the face of Hegelism, Freud, all the other, all the philosophies coming from Europe and take them on. And so from him came forth uh, really a lot of what the fundamental movement became. There's also guys like D.L. Moody, of course, God used, I'm not going to, you guys know, great evangelists all over, um, you know, in the 1880s. Um, and uh, prolific uh, not not as sharp as a guy like Carroll um, and of course out of Chicago Moody Bible Institute you guys know about all that contemporary Charles Spurgeon um, but at the, 20th, at the 20th century Baptist movements you can see uh, primarily they're in the southeast corner of the United States and that's where the modern Baptist heritage really grew from uh, from those southern states so that's why the Southern Baptist Convention was so prolific so uh, in the 20th century, from all of this, these fundamentals came forth. Now, this is just a one way of looking at them. The Bible is the sole authority. The autonomy of the local New Testament church, which I touched on with Graves, which was supported by guys like Carol. priesthood to the believer. The two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Individual soul liberty, which is what we would today call what we're, what this whole nation's up, up in arms about, which is you have freedom to make your own choices. Um, separation of church and state two offices of pastor and deacon, and saved membership. Now, you could nuance it differently, but those are some Baptist tenets that had come forth uh, through this time. The modern Baptist heritage, uh, you know, it wasn't always what it is now. You had the American Baptist, General Association of Regular Baptists, which is up north, World Baptist Fellowship, Southwide Baptist Fellowship, Independent Baptist Associations, non-denominational evangelical associations. You had great guys like Billy Sunday, led thousands of people to the Lord. And then this guy, this guy that uh, I mentioned here, uh, who was brought in, uh, you know, connected to this, B.H., um, to Carol. i got to get B.H., i got to make sure, yeah, Benjamin Harvey. Not to be confused with the guy who wrote uh, Trail of Tears. That's a different guy. That's uh, some other Carol guy. Anyway, J. J Frank Norris uh, is a love-hate guy. He was kind of nuts, but... Um, he was, he was influential on in what you would call the Fundamental Baptist Movement, which, become the, which became uh, the largest movement in America in the 1900s. Uh, now, why do I bring this up? Well, because J. Frank Norris, you see that guy in the back there? This guy, right? How do I get that thing? This guy. That's Beach and Vic. But that's uh, Brett Bartlett's great-grandpa. So, Brett Brett Bartlett. Yeah. Yeah, that's his great grandpa. And you know this guy here, right? Harry Truman? So, in 1940s, when Harry Truman's looking for counsel, he got, one of the guys he went to was this guy, J. Frank Norris. You've heard of the John Birch Society? He supported John Birch and the, as a missionary. And so, excuse me, he was prolific in, in supporting missions. He was extreme in his view that you needed no other influence than the Bible. Uh, J-, J. Frank. I mean, uh, he had a he had a guy that helped him, which I've already mentioned. His name's Lois Insminger. I don't know where he's at. And uh, this, I'm just going to run through these because I'm running out of time. So he wrote a letter, and you can look this up, uh, and encourage President Truman uh, to um, to embrace uh, the nation of Israel and to support them because they're God's chosen people. And I've got that. I've got that letter. I think uh, where did I put it? I don't know where I don't think I got it in this series of slides, but you can find that online. I've got it in my notes as well. But um, and independent Baptists were, were really influential uh, to the chagrin today of many people of the position of supporting Israel as a nation because they're God's chosen people as the Bible teaches it. And so Harry Truman, who himself was a Baptist, you wouldn't know it, but he was a Baptist, uh, thought awful highly because that paper that Graves started later on, this guy started a paper, uh, The Sword of the Lord. And uh, it was, I think it was the Sword of the Lord, I'm not sure, but he had, he had a huge distribution. The first mega churches in America were started by Independent Fundamental Baptists. The same guys today that can hardly draw 25 people if you don't wear, you know, a suit and a tie and a, and a dress that's so many inches off the floor. That, that whole movement started uh, quite differently back in the day. All right, so J. Frank Norris had some problems. Um, shot a guy to death in his office down there in Texas one day. Um, so, um, you know, that was a bad deal. Uh, he also seemed to be warm at times with the KKK and, um, that's not good. Uh, then there were other guys like Criswell. He's a, he was a Southern Baptist. He died in 2002. Uh, he's prolific and, uh, had a lot of influence. There's guys like Harry Ironside that are, were Baptists that had a lot of influence. Now Frank, Jay Frank would have probably hated Harry Ironside, uh, because it wasn't him. So some of these guys. I read, a, I read a book by uh, 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 Pete Ruckman, who himself was pretty hated among the Baptists, but uh, he said you put these guys in the room and the blood will run out in front of the door, which is, is kind of funny and true. Um, and so then there's this guy that I just pointed to a minute ago, Beach and Vic. He ended up taking over Detroit Baptist Temple. So J. Frank Norris had a church in Detroit. A lot of the people migrated from the south to the north. So they started a church in Detroit, well-attended. <laughs> Uh, they were running thousands, like 5,000 people plus. I don't remember the number. Huge. And then they had uh, the church in Fort Worth, Texas, that, uh, that uh, J. Frank preached. For a while, uh, this is in the 40s uh, in the 50s, they were, he was flying from Detroit back to Texas in a private plane, just like you know the big shots do today, to preach in these two churches. Well, eventually, that's untenable. So he turns over the reins to his right-hand man and former song leader, uh, G.B. Vick. And G.B. Vick uh, takes that church, and it continues to grow quite substantially. And then the whole movement gets franchised. And so there's a, eventually there's a split between J. Frank and, um, and uh, Beach and Vick. Uh, and one of the guys that was a part of that was a guy named Wendell Zimmerman. And Wendell Zimmerman was a guy out of Joplin, Missouri, who had heard J. Frank and got on board along with Beach and Vick, along with W. Dow and all these other preachers, and they were, they were, man, they were spreading out all over the United States. They franchised a thing. It was called World Bible Fellowship. And they were just, they were going to town with missions and ministry. But there became some control problems as, uh, as J. Frank was, uh, not easy to work with. Uh, Beach and Vic his right-handed man. They all got together. I think it was in Springfield if I remember right. And they decided, look, we're going to break because we can't, this, this, uh, J. Frank guy, uh, is an immoral fella. At least that's the way they saw it. And, um. And so they started uh, what's called the Bible Baptist Fellowship. And they, start, they built a Bible college in Springfield, Missouri. And uh, Wendell Zimmerman and W. Dow and, uh, and, uh, and Beecham and Vic and several others headed that up. Now, that's you guys know that guy. is standing in that pulpit. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, uh, I'm sorry, that's Brett Bartlett's great-grandpa, I think is how that rolls. Yeah, because his dad... He is one, two, three. Yeah, our great-great-grandfather now. That may be, I may be one out. So uh, that's him pre- preaching here at HBF. <clears throat> and so there's that connection. I remember, uh, I remember there's a hall named for him in the library or something down at the Bible College in Springfield. And um, Talking about him and Brian Clark were, went to Bible College together down there. And they were arguing back and forth in the GB Vic Library. So uh, that's pretty funny. A contemporary of, of those guys is Bob Jones, and you've heard of Bob Jones University. Still going to this day. Um, uh, not what they used to be, but uh, usually very legalistic, for sure. But uh, they're still going out on the East Coast, I think South Carolina. Uh, uh, John Rice, very influential. I think he had the support of the Lord. So These uh, publications became very important because people used to read and uh, before the internet, and they would put out these doctrinal statements, and and became very prolific, laying out the doctrinal positions. This is the right-hand man of, man of, um, of, uh, of uh, Beecham, or not Beecham Vic, but uh, J. Frank Norris. And he, he's the one that, he's a Jew that got saved and uh, had a Jewish background and established the Sunday school system that most churches use today. That's, a, that's actually a Hebrew concept. J. Frank Norris was dead set against it, and uh, he kept pushing it and kept pushing it until finally, you know, he finally relented And uh, the the Sunday school became one of the biggest things to draw people in in America. And, of course, later on comes the bus ministry and all those other things. And so uh, that's interesting. Dallas Billington, uh, the guys up north kept uh, repopulating up there, um, a big church in Ohio, up in the Akron-Canton area. A guy named Mike Blake is the product of that church, that local church. You guys know him. He was brought up and his wife were brought up in Dallas Billington's church. And that's the Canton Baptist Temple, which is now closed. Um, and then there's Harold Henniger. I was just, me and Jeff were at his church last, couple of weeks ago. And they got this awesome Hall of Fame of church history uh, up at the Akron Baptist Temple. That church is still going to this day. Uh, Eddie this his wife. I should have put a picture. His wife grew up in that church. And uh, the church that they're sent out from is about uh, 10 miles or less from that existing location. Um, and then there's this guy, John Rawlings out of Cincinnati. Ohio, they pulled him out of Texas. GB, G.B. Vic calls him up. He's going church to church on these old country roads preaching and leading people to Christ like crazy. And there's a church open up in Cincinnati. G.B. Vic calls him and says, Hey, go. I need you in Cincinnati to go preach up here. He comes up there. That church grew to like 12,000 or 1,200, 2,000 plus people, it became huge. These churches, guys, were running 5,000, 6,000, and that's not embellishing. I mean, crazy big churches. This is back in the 60s, 70s, uh, and even into the 80s. Uh, a guy named Greg Axe, who some of you know, Greg Axe, Pastor Greg Axe, uh, was influenced greatly by that church with, with uh, Pastor Rawlings there. Then there's this guy, who was also a founder of the BBC, contemporary of all those guys, uh, the guy I mentioned from Joplin. <clears throat> he was the pastor of a church called Kansas City Baptist Temple, and his successor was a guy named Truman Dollar. Truman Dollar, I sit at his desk every day when I come in, and uh, I have, he was the pastor of Kansas City Baptist Temple. <clears throat> and, at, and he was a contemporary of this guy. They both went to the BBC down in Springfield, Missouri. They were good buddies. <clears throat> and so there's a succession from Wendell Zimmerman to Truman Dollar to Jeff Adams to Brian Hedges. And I'd like to tell you, all these guys held fast to the faithful word, but I won't get into that. But anyway, uh, I can't deny my heritage. So, uh, so that's it. And, uh, <clears throat> and so, by the way, Truman Dollar was on the, he was part of wanting to translate the New King James Bible, so just FYI. But uh, <clears throat> Wendell Zimmerman was a pioneer. He's, uh, uh, he's got a lot of, of influence. Uh, he, he did a great job. Um, Miss Kitty, who those of you that may remember Miss Curtis, Catherine Curtis was in his local church. Phyllis Riddle, who used to be a member of our church, was in Wendell Zimmerman's original church. Uh, the church plant that was meeting in a garage in down th- in Kansas City, Ruth Reeves, was a member of that local church. I got pictures of her with Wendell Zimmerman back in the day. So That's pretty cool. And then there's this guy. Nobody wants to claim him, but it's Pete Ruckman, and uh, he's influential whether you like it or not, and Art Wilson and a lot of others. There's this guy, Clifford Clark, who was also a contemporary at that time. He's got a, he's got a nephew um, named Paul, or uh, no, that's a son. It'd be a son named Paul Clark down in uh, Columbia, as a missionary who's preached here at our church. That's a picture. And then he's got another grandson called uh, Brian Clark, all contemporaries of those times. These guys are the fruit of those old ministries, those old Baptist roots. And, uh, and then you got other guys like Mordecai Ham, who uh, led Billy Graham to Christ. Billy Graham led Jeff Adams to Christ. And that puts me again in that pipeline. So do you know your biblical heritage? This is the thing. This preacher I didn't have any of those roots. I don't have any grandpas, any grandmas. I don't know anything. I think I just came out of the dirt somewhere. But spiritually, <clears throat> spiritually, you have a heritage. And so I wanted to tie up all that church history and bring it down to the, where the rubber meets the road. Because uh, if I had a little more time, I could be a little bit more specific at how those dots connect. But those, all those dots do connect to where we are today. And whether we like it or not, and whether we like everybody, it's like your own family. Whether you like everybody in your old fa- in your family and everything they did or not, that is the roots of what brought us to where we are today, and so uh, so that's just a little bit of contemporary history. All right, we got to pray, and be dismissed. Hope that was profitable, and kind of connected the dots. And uh, and so some of you may wonder, what is this? We talk about KCBT and this, that, and the other. What's all that about? Well, our heritage goes back to that, and their heritage goes back to that, and their heritage goes back to that, and so on and so forth. So. Um, the, that's why, really, no matter, matter where you go, uh, most Baptists are cousins, whether they like it or not. And so, um, and so that's where that's where it's at. All right, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to meet. Pray a blessing on the Word of God as we're dismissed. We thank you, and we praise you, and we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. So, uh, family, it'll be marriage and. family.